Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. In today's episode, we hear the incredible story of Brian Finnegan's journey from sneaking into office buildings selling what he calls a commodity product to running the entire leasing platform at Bricksmore as the executive vice president, one of the largest owners of shopping centers across the country, all before turning 40 years old. So let's dive right into it. Hey, everybody. Aaron Zucker here, the host of Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. Wanted to take a quick second and thank the guys over at Cas Source, who are a phenomenal agency that helped me put together this idea of creating this podcast into a reality. They're willing and able to not only put together a podcast, but any other great marketing content that you may need. And I'd highly recommend reaching out to them. Brian, yeah, appreciate you joining. No problem. Happy to be here. Yeah, no, it's exciting. Anytime you get an opportunity to speak with somebody who's, I mean, for lack of a better term, climb the corporate ladders, cookies cutters, that sounds as quickly as you have with such a stellar role at, at this point in your career, I think is going to take notice to anybody. And I think our listeners out there are certainly going to appreciate getting to hear your story. So, well, first, I, I appreciate it. Appreciate spending some time with you. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's been that fast, but you know, I'm really lucky to be where I'm at. So, right. I think hard work may have something to do with it too, yeah. but we'll, we'll get into your story a little bit. So, okay. I'm, let's go way back. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from? What was your family life like? Yeah. So I'm from Philadelphia. I grew up there. Most of my family is still there. I grew up just outside of Philadelphia, close to in the Roxborough Mania section of the city. Still in the city limits. My dad worked for the city. Like I said, most of my family was from in and around Philadelphia. Yeah. So I didn't. I left. I went to Duquesne in Pittsburgh for college. I wasn't sure if I was going to play basketball at college or not. And I wasn't that good, but some smaller schools. Just, I just so wait, how tall are you? You're like, you're like I'm a like giant. Six five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is, which is a giant in the real estate uh, business. Yeah, I guess so. We, uh, so you're pretty good. Our so you're pretty good I was okay. Player. I wasn't great. I could have played like maybe D2, D3 was where I was looking. And then, um, went to Pittsburgh, loved Pitt. I went to Catholic school basically my entire upbringing. So having four more years of Catholic school was important to my... So, so you ended up going to Duquesne? I ended up going to Duquesne. And did you play there? I didn't play there. Okay, so, got it. But in any event, I ended up there and it was great. I love the city of Pittsburgh. It was my first time really spending a lot of time outside of Philadelphia. And then went back there after school and shortly after I got into the got into the real estate. So let's take a step back even further. You said your dad worked for the city. He worked for the city, yeah. Basically... Philadelphia has a large parks division. So Fairmount Park is one of the largest public parks in the country. So he worked the Fairmount Parks commissioner. So he was responsible for, you know, vets there, some property management type stuff and worked for the city for 30 years. So he worked at playgrounds. He worked, you know, organized team sporting events at a lot of these playgrounds and stuff. So he worked for the city for a long time. And what did your mom do? My mom worked for a litigation support service, which... If you ever see, they don't see as many of them now because most of those guys do document imaging and scanning. But I don't know if you remember, there'd be guys walking around town with big boxes like Xerox boxes. Well, what litigation support service at the time would, they would do repro graphics for trial for attorneys, copy work, basically, do medical records work. And it was a heavy sales intensive business. My mom was there when it first started. She's still there today. She's been there 40 years. Yeah. It's been there 40 years. So it's actually, and it's actually where I started working in high school and 
kind of when I got out of college. So you worked as a kid growing up? I did. I did. Yeah. Do you think that had some influence on your career today, having to have a job? Yeah, work was always... Both of my parents worked and thinking about it, whether it was two of us going out and to my buddies shoveling snow and getting money for that, or it was you know, mowing lawns, doing some yard work. I mean, I had a job after my freshman year of high school okay. in the summer. So you're 14 and working. I mean, yeah, it definitely had into this. Look, I grew up in a, a middle-class family and I, I didn't really want for a lot, but my parents really instilled in my brother and I that you had to work and it was just expected that you had a job. And your brother, what's your, you older or you younger? I'm older. I'm older than my brother. Yeah. All right, so is that where you get your managerial skills from? No, not at all. My brothers, I, I tell people all the time, I, I can only wish to be as smart as my little brother. He's on the partner track at a big law firm in New York City, worked his tail off to get there, worked his way through law school in New York, which is not the easiest thing to do when you're not supposed to be working and, and funding that was tough. And I, I couldn't be more proud of where he's at today. He's one of the smartest guys I know. He's a transaction attorney. I like to think that I work hard a little bit, but he works harder than I could ever imagine in terms of the hours they have to put in on documents. And you think about major transactions, attorneys have a deadline to hit a date. Right. I got to hit the date, right? And every client has an urgent matter all the every time. Every client has an urgent matter. And so when he's on a deal, it's a big deal. I get that. What's the age difference? So my brother turned 36 yesterday and I'll be 40 in September. Okay. Got it. So you beat each other up a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. That's healthy. That's all right. Yeah. Sorry, we're jumping around a little bit. But basically, so you go to Duquesne, finish up, then you move back. Yeah. So I, my senior year was when September, September, my senior year was when September 11th happened. Oh, wow. And so the job market coming out of college in 02 wasn't wasn't the best thing in the world. It was shit. It was shit. Yeah, it was really shit. Yeah, I was trying to be politically correct. No, no, no. We will have politically correct on this. No, it's totally fine. I wasn't. No, yeah, we weren't uh, sure what the rating is or who's listening. So, but yeah, it was tough. And so I had interned at the company I was talking about, my mom's company where she was, and they offered me a sales job. And so it was back in Philadelphia, but it was, you would go into law firms and pitch reprographic business. So it was like selling popsicle sticks, right? You go in and say, do you have any big cases coming up? And you know that the paralegals in the law firms, the ones that control the copy work, that control what gets done for trial, discovery. So the paralegal was really your customer. Yeah. So today this would never happen because you couldn't get into buildings. But like I would walk around with whether it was basketball tickets or theater tickets or candy or things like that. And literally sneak into attorney's office. Like someone would come in and let me on the floor and I would go cubicle to cubicle, passing things out, passing candy out, passing gifts out, and just getting to know attorneys and then paralegals. Our mutual friend, Beth Azor, is going to love that part of the story. (laughs) That's awesome. So you're you're hustling, you're out there. Yeah. Were you a money thirsty guy? Like what made you have? Because that that's not easy. No, like I mean, uh, it comes naturally funny. to you, I'm sure, because I know you well enough to know yeah. that like you have the chutzpah to be able to do something like that. But that still takes grit. That still takes yeah, work ethic. Sales for me was always interesting because there was not really a cap on what you could make. I probably did while my parents sacrificed to put my brother and I in a really good school where we learned a lot. Our high school in Philadelphia, where it really taught me how to think. I didn't put as much time in school as I probably should have. Right. That's uh, how you end up in real estate. Back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> For what it's worth, I can relate to that. Yeah. But one thing I did, I always like, I, I like dealing with people. I was never really hesitant about talking to people. I, I couldn't imagine 
a job where I wouldn't get to interact and spend time with people. Mm -hmm. So it was fine. And I had the best sales manager at the time who demanded literally to see my cold calls every day. He was a numbers guy. And it didn't... One thing that I learned early was you don't have to be good if you just make the calls, right? Like if you make the calls by the sense, but just by a numbers game, you're going to get sales, right? And so I used to make a certain amount of calls every day and he would demand it. He'd want to see them every day. And then if you learn the business and you're making the calls, you even have more of an opportunity to do more and make more. And so snowball effect. Yeah, the snowball effect. So I did that. It was fine. But I could tell right kind of right away it wasn't what I wanted to do because it was like it was selling a commodity. There was really not a lot of differentiation. It felt like checkers as opposed to chess. Or... It was selling popsicle sticks, literally, because there was somebody we could turn a job around faster, maybe. We could differentiate on the type of service we provided. But at the end of the day, when you're working for a client and you're billing a certain amount of hours, keeping expenses under control is important. Right. So at the time, at least, it was a lot of, well, what's the best deal you can give me? It was, it was very cost related. A lot of firms started using their own shops in house. A lot of, there were third party management companies that would effectively come in and say, well, we're going to run your copy shop. Right. So we're going to do all the work there and not send it out. So I just didn't like, and the other thing as, I felt like I worked hard and I felt like I earned the position and I had picked up some accounts. I was fortunate enough to get some accounts pretty early that were where I was able to earn commissions. But I did felt like it was handed to me because I was working at my mom and my godmother's company. And look, I interviewed with their partner, but for some reason in the back of my head, I felt like I didn't earn it. Right. Right. I get that. I mean, it sounds like you knocked it out of the park. Uh, I know your humility and how humble you are. No, so. but it's it's like you sit there and... For coming right out of college, I was making good money. I was living at home, but it wasn't like what I really liked to do. It, I knew there was going to be a point where I didn't want to do it. So I just said, okay, why don't I find something I want to do early? So I want to totally get into ripping the yeah, beginning yeah. off and pivoting in yeah, just a second. Sure. But I have two questions about sure. the job before that sure. raced through my head. Yeah. You talked about how you knew you wanted to do something where you're interacting with people. Yep. I can relate and appreciate that. I'm yeah. the same way. In that sense, people who naturally tend to want to interact with people obviously like people to like them back. Now, how did you take no? Because I'm sure you were told no a time or two or 10,000 along the way. Yeah. And look, rejection sometimes still is not the easiest thing in the world. Somebody taught me one time, and I actually had a conversation with somebody in our leasing development program about this last week. If you change your mindset and expect a certain amount of rejection every day, it's like, I expect the sun to come up or I expect dinner or I expect different things. So if you go into it knowing that part of my job is people saying no, and it doesn't have to do with anything with me personally. Yes, they may not like me. They may be in a crappy mood. They may, be, they may say no for a lot of different reasons. Right. But it's part of any salesperson's job is rejection. So I used to try to say, I played a joke on myself. I'd say, all right, let me count the no's. I'm not getting off the phone until I get 25 no's today. It's a good way to do it. And so like, I'd sit there and you just write the lines on calls. Yeah. Just here's how many no's. And if you sit there and you tell yourself and you hold up to the commitment that you're going to get 25 no's in a day, 
you're bound to get a maybe. You're bound to get a yes. And 25 no's a day is 125 no's a week is when you add up, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier with numbers and the numbers game of if you just make the calls and you expect a certain amount of rejection, then the yes are going to start happening. But back to the original question, it was more a mindset shift and it was just an expectation of in the business, you're going to get part of it. You feel like your mom was helpful with that, setting the table on that on the front end? Like, hey, Brian, it's cool that you got this job, but like, you need to understand yeah. no's associated with it? No, it wasn't as much that. It was... And look, I had had plenty of yeses where eventually I'll be able to sell somebody. Like, there was like a thrill of a hunt type thing of getting the business and getting deals done yeah. that I still have today. So the no's associated with that paled in comparison to the gratification of getting yes. Right. Got it. So you talked about your manager. Yeah. And you said that he held you to a standard of numbers. And it sounds like that really resonated with you. And it, it, did. And it did. Yeah. Did, he, did you ever miss your numbers? Did he flip out? I mean, what? Oh, I mean, he would. Yeah. I remember one day we had a. Uh, Guys, I wish you could see Brian's face. So yeah, yeah. answer that question. Was, sure you we, we, had a, we were doing a sales boot camp. And I came in at 845. And he was there at 830. And the guy who was training was at 830. And I had a, a dumb excuse for why I missed it. I think, I don't know if I had a shirt from the dry cleaner or whatever, it was no issues. And I remember at the end of the day, he said, you know, before we start, before we recap on the day, I want to know how two of you, it was me and the other guy in the South percent, have the balls to walk in here at 8.45 when we're having a effing sales boot camp. I started going through the excuses and I finally just said, look, that's on me. It won't happen again. But he was tough. And... He expected numbers and he expect like the way he looked at things was if you weren't making the calls, you weren't doing your job. And the stuff that came in just off the phone, that was okay. That should be gravy on top of sort of like you when you get a call in on a leasing side. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I cut my teeth in leasing, leasing tough product, let's call it. Yeah. And if I ever got a deal done from a sign call, I almost felt bad. It was like yeah. I didn't eat enough shit there uh, on this commission. And look, I think so, look, sometimes, I mean, we count deal count and oftentimes aren't qualifying enough where it came from. We're looking at you know, a quantity of production, but it's certainly more gratifying when, and I'm sure you feel this too, when you, something that you've worked on for a long time, something you've been banging the door on for a long time, to get that one done is easier than somebody saying, hey, you might get paid the same amount, but from a personal gratification standpoint, the stuff they had to fight harder from for is always going to be more gratifying. For sure. That totally resonates with me. All right. So you have come to the conclusion for whatever reason, it doesn't sound like you're passionate about it, that you want to pivot. Yeah. You want to do something else. Yeah. So what happens next? So it was really interesting. One of my best friends to this day is a partner at a real estate firm in Philadelphia. His name is Brian Ward. He works for Equity Retail Brokers. He got out of college the same time. And wasn't sure what he wanted to do. You know, went to one of those financial advisor places where they're like, first day, like, okay, call your cousin, call your aunt, like that type of stuff. And he's like, sure. I don't want to do that. So he quit. And he was working out in a gym and he ran into a founder of the firm who was working in a retail real estate brokerage firm. And it was over the summer. He got into it. And I remember, you know, a year in, he was going to this Vegas ICSE. He was working on deals with, brands and companies that I knew. And I had no idea in college or growing up how shopping centers got built. 
how they were owned, how, retail, how retailers pick sites. I had no clue. And so I just remember it being exciting. Like here, to your question earlier about what got stale, here I'm running around with copywork boxes and dragging these stuff, these things around the city. And he's flying to meet PNC Bank in Pittsburgh who's coming in. They're going to do X amount of bank branches. And it just seemed really exciting to me. It still is. And it still is. It still is. And it's, I, I mean, I'll get to why. I mean, it's one of the reasons I love the business is because we get to interact with the brands and companies that people interact with every day. And, and there's not a ton of businesses that do that, right? I mean, I can go to a family party and my aunt will be talking about the new restaurant or the new grocery store, or like, the yeah, new place they went in their business, right? And so, and where they shop and it's, it's exciting stuff. And so I remember seeing that and I was like, this is pretty cool. How do I do it? So your buddy got hooked up yep. in the industry and he's with a brokerage firm. He's with a brokerage firm, equity retail brokers in Philadelphia. He's still there. Give him a shout out if he's on here. Yeah. And he, when I wanted to get into it, I met with him and his partner, again, who still owns the firm, is one of the partners of the firm. And I just asked him about the business and I started investigating it kind of for myself. What did you do from there? Yeah. So this the next step I wouldn't advise everybody to do because I was really fortunate to have a mom who let me live in their basement and, and supported me a bit. So I quit. I just knew I didn't want to do it. And I wasn't going to work at a place and... How old are you at this time? I was 20, 22. What year is this? So this is 2003. Okay. Market's good. Yeah. Market's getting a little better, but I wasn't going to look for a job when I was at my family's company and I didn't want to be there. So I quit. I asked my mom to help me out to get my real estate license. I did. And then I started interviewing at some firms. So I started interviewing at companies. There wasn't a spot at the firm Brian was at. And there was another brokerage company, Legend Properties, that took a shot. How many companies roughly did you talk to? I talked to the Flynn company and office brokerage. They were doing mostly office, which I found to be similar to the commodity sales that I was already doing. And I've used this term a couple of times, but I come back to it like selling popsicle sticks is tough for me. I mean, people do it. People are great at it in various different commodities. You an element of art to be associated with. Yeah, I just wanted to look, it was a differentiator, like a product that you had to sell, but ultimately you were... There was a differentiation. Sure. Right. So I talked to them. Who else did I talk to? I talked to Equity. There were a couple of companies that I talked to at the time. So I went to what was a smaller firm that I really didn't know what I was getting into. And I was just kind of happy to do it. I got my license and I was kind of happy to, to do it. So, and then I went there. I, I worked under one of the um, family members at the, at the company. And it was tough. I mean, I wasn't making a lot of money. I had no health insurance. Like, God forbid, I would have gotten an accident or something was right. going on. And everybody who's in real estate is a safe driver too, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it was a challenge. It was a challenge. I remember some of my friends in that market were starting to do well. We're starting to make money. And it was tough. I mean, we've heard a bunch here today about how many people live paycheck to paycheck. But it was tough. But fortunately, you know, I had my, my mom, my dad, who supported me enough to let me live in their basement <laughs> still sure. and get through it until I got to a certain spot. That's awesome. So you're doing retail brokerage. Yeah. How did it go? So it sounds like it started off a little slow, but... Yeah, it certainly did. So I was fortunate enough. I started working with Great Clips at the time was a client of the company. And I was working on that account, working with franchisees. And 
I was searching for sites for them. I was getting a small piece of those commissions. And then there was another company. It was called Amazon Cafe. But they wish they would have trademarked that name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't think of that, man. Yeah. So it's kind of like, like a tropical smoothie is today. Okay. And what was really interesting, one of the guys at the firm left. And at the time, like people in, in a brokerage firm were still looking for the biggest things. And now if it's a good concept, I'm sure even established brokers would want to run with them to some extent. But at the time, they didn't feel like dealing with franchisees. And I started working with them. You're doing cartwheels in the corner by yourself, etc. No, no, I wasn't. I was, I was working. I was partnering with somebody on it. I had actually done enough where they wound up giving me a, a small... I, I might have been like at 24 grand or something. But at least I had health insurance. I started to earn a little bit of commissions. And no one wanted this account after the guy who I was working with went on left. So I picked it up. And literally within a couple months of me picking it up, he sold 12 franchises. So I was suddenly scheduling portfolio reviews with general growth in malls. I didn't even know where these places were. You didn't even know what Cam was yet. No, I'm kidding. But... In New Hampshire and working with developers who frankly wouldn't even call me back before. So that was fun. I put a bunch of those into a number of shopping centers. I know you're a franchisee. <laughs> taught me a lot of the challenges of the franchise business for sure, particularly franchisees that aren't well supported who are you know, selling their life savings and coming into a new industry. Right. Taught me a lot about that. That was like your big break, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, it, it certainly was. Well, it was one of them. It was one of my big breaks. And the other was, and I, I credit, I know we're at an ICSE event, but NextGen was just starting, ICSE NextGen. And really the program was just starting in 03, 04. And so I joined the NextGen program. And, it, and again, similar to what Amazon did in terms of getting me into the door with a lot of developers and such, it, it really opened doors for me and from a networking standpoint. So I had um, I put a couple restaurants into a, what was at the time, Cremont Realty Trust. I put a, a couple of Amazons into their portfolio. So just for the context of the listeners yeah. who don't know Cremont. Today, they're bricks more. Important piece to the puzzle, maybe? Yeah, I was going to get to that, but that's fine. At the time, they owned about 90 centers and, and 12 million square feet. And they're a big Philadelphia landlord, which we, which we still are today. And I didn't love the brokerage aspect at the time. Just the best thing about it for me was the opportunity to be able to go out and fall on your face. Like I didn't know anything. And Jim DePetris had enough confidence in me to allow me to just go out. Do you have like that super embarrassing story that you can think of? Because you mentioned falling on your face, which is inevitable for everybody starting in the business. Well, I had one. I remember having to get up in front of all of the Great Clips franchisees because the uh, broker I was working with was on vacation and the franchisees weren't happy with our responsiveness, how up to date we were keeping the, the portfolio list. And I was 23, maybe 23, and literally having to stand up in front of a group of 20, 30 franchisees explaining to them like why we screwed up, why we weren't maintaining things the right way so that we could keep the business. And that was tough. The other one was the, 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 what I was talking about with Amazon earlier. Like I was literally pretending on the phone to negotiate like letters of intent in the Chamonix Mall and other places with mall guys who've been doing this for a very long time. And 
just kind of acting as if <laughs> as best I could. So those were two things that kind of stuck out to me a bit, which were like some learning experiences, I guess. Sounds like it might've been terrifying at the time, but you may have grown from it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So back to your story. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for my side rants. I tend to no, do that. No, no, no. So, so you're, you're cutting deals with Amazon with great clips, Amazon Cafe. I don't want to confuse uh, yeah. the other Amazon at this time. I threw a couple into Cremont centers. And when I was looking for an opportunity, you know, I was ready to move. And I, so I started interviewing with a mall landlord at the time. And at the time, they're a huge mall landlord in Philadelphia. It's one of those, like the best jobs you didn't get. <laughs> Went through the interview process. And, and I remember when, because I could tell I wanted to get on the landlord side. I just like the, the ownership side of it appealed to me. Like you're working for, like as a broker, it's great if you build up a client base and you're working for your client. You're almost like you're an extension of them, either on the tenant or the landlord side. But working for an owner is just you look at it, you own the real estate, right? And that appealed to me. There was a security aspect of it too, a bit. And I looked at the way kind of ownership carried themselves versus whether it was the booths at ICSE or it just seemed more more like a professional path for me. And I get to know a few people there. So I'll never forget this. I was sitting in a car outside of Legend and I got a call that I wasn't getting the job at this mall developer. And he's like, he just said, look, I went in for the interview and he asked me to, gave me two malls and he asked me like what I would do with these malls. And I spent the weekend like going through how I'd break something up. And I sent it into him. And I remember I went in, I met everybody there. And then following that, I got a call that, you know, you didn't get the job. And I remember sitting there, like, what am I going to do? This sucks. I went in and I went to the ICSE website. And I looked at the job postings and it was job posting for Kramer. And so I sent the resume to their head of leasing, Mike Moss at the time. And rather than post it, he just said, would you move to Connecticut or Virginia? And I said, for the right opportunity, sure. He's like, can you come in tomorrow? So I came in, interviewed and got you know, a great opportunity. I, I had a non-compete at the time. If anybody was on here, I'd suggest if you're starting out, not signing those as well or avoiding them as best you can. That's good advice. But the non-compete was only within 60 miles of Philadelphia. So you were one foot out of the yeah, door. So, so I left. And like to me, DC was a seemed like a really fun place. I knew some people down there. So I went to lease what was their southern portfolio which was two assets in Maryland, three in Virginia, two in North Carolina, two in South Carolina, and two in Tennessee. Wow. Yeah. Did you open up that office? Was that a new office? No, so it was an office at Marumsco Plaza. It's on Route 1, not far from Potomac Mills. Mm-hmm. That's about an hour south of DC. And it was a center that we were selling at the time. And when they were selling centers at the time, they literally didn't put like a penny into the shopping center. Like, from the dead birds in the space. It was tough. So there was an office down there with a property manager, two property management assistants. And so I moved down. I was in Philadelphia for a few weeks and then moved down. And this was November of 04. And within two weeks, an email goes out for a phone call that we were being sold to Centro. So I just get down to this office. I picked up up my stuff and I'm sitting there. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, what does this mean? What's going on? All this stuff. But it uh, wound up being the best thing that, that ever happened. Okay. 
that could have gone either way. It sounds like it was a fortunate break for you. Yeah. So what happens next? Yeah. So from there, Centro comes in, my boss is going to leave, ultimately winds up staying. But the founder of Cremont, he was leaving as part of the deal. He cashed out of the deal when Michonne and his son left as well. And his son was leasing all the Philadelphia assets. So within six months, it got me the opportunity to move back to Philadelphia, lease properties in a market that I knew really well and lease better assets because obviously that was our non-core portfolio and be in the office with the new management team that came in from Centro. So that exposure was critical. It was critical. The other thing that was critical was the, the Centro story. So Centro was an Australian REIT. We were the second sort of platform that, that they bought in the US. They bought 13 centers in California a year before they bought us. But the other thing that was interesting about it was, I mean, within two years, we went from about 100 centers and 12 million square feet to 750 centers and 110 million square feet. I'm no mathematician, but that's real growth. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. And it, it opened that's up. That's insane. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, seven and a half X on anything. But when you're talking about hundreds, you're talking about shopping centers. You know, it was right? insane. But I was also, and I was exposed to investors coming in from out of town. And, you were going to grow up whether you wanted to or not. Yeah, Very and quickly. taking these guys out on tours, taking them out to whether it was, I remember when they came in, our, uh, our CEO at the time, Mark Wilson, he said to me, I don't care what these guys want to do. Just take them out and they'll enjoy themselves tonight in Philadelphia. I mean, the next day there's like investors puking on the bus. And, uh, you did it right then. Yeah, we did it right. I was exposed to investors. I got exposed to just a lot of different things. And as we expanded, I'm like 25 at the time. And as we expanded, we were the team that, that kind of grew with them. So when they combined the operations with the West Coast, a year after they bought us, I moved out to California and I'd never been to the state before, but I thought I was going out there to band-aid a situation and I wound up moving out there to Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. Had a small team at the time, so I had another a legal person who was working with me. He was still at the company today, Heather, Heather Dwyer. We had another leasing rep and an assistant out there. At this point, are you managing any other leasing agents? or? Yeah, just one. I started managing one. Not Heather, that was... No, that was Susie Daniels at the time. So we moved out to California and, and we at the time, and Centro then at the time bought a number of other public companies to facilitate that expansion that I talked about. So I was really lucky and fortunate to be in that spot. Insane career trajectory. Yeah, it was fast. It was definitely fast. At 25, 26 years yeah. old. So you're living out in Santa Monica. Yep. The company is enormous. Yeah. You have a, for lack of a better term, you're essentially a regional leasing. Yeah, regional VP. VP. Yep. This is 2005. So this would be, I moved out there in June of 06. Okay. In March of 2007 is we announced the merger with New Plan Excel. Sure. And I was at kind of another crossroads there because they, they had a VP that was doing roughly the same thing, yep. right? And he had just joined the company. So that happens in 07. I don't get the job, the VP job, which obviously is disappointing, right? And I almost left. At that point, I'm out in California. I started interviewing with other people and I was like, you know what, screw this. I'm not going to go back to, to what I was doing before. So I thought it was the right move to start looking to see what else I could do. And then I'll never forget the, the COO at the time came out and spent time with me 
And I'll never forget this because we saw Britney Spears at dinner. Remember when she shaved her head? Yeah. Like crazy Britney Spears. She was yeah. at, it was like, so it was at um, Houston's in Santa Monica. Okay. And you spent some time, told me that there was going to be opportunities at the company. Britney Spears told you this? Britney Spears told me that. Yeah. The CEO at the time did. Told me there was going to be opportunities. Asked me similar questions to, to what I ask you know, young people today. If they, would you like to move? Where would you like to go to? Do you want to stay in California? Is that important? Is it important to get back to the East Coast? And so we talked. We had a great discussion. And like I said, look, I'll put my head down, go to work and see if something pops up. So that led to me then moving to Atlanta in October of 07. Yes, I moved to Atlanta. And at the time, uh, New Plan had a redevelopment program. It was, mo- it was a lot of box leasing that they were doing, but mostly... That has been pretty exciting in 2006, 2007. It was great, but it was right at the end. So I moved there and just at the end of 07, Centro had a major liquidity issue. For those that know the history, I mean, basically they were taking on a lot of short-term debt to make these acquisitions. And at the time, they just didn't have a chair when the music stopped. They weren't able to refinance the debt and Centro basically was going under. We had no capital as a company. And I'm sitting there in the redevelopment role and we don't have any money to spend on redevelopment. That's a tough spot to be in. Yeah. But I was in a good place. Atlanta was a good city. I felt like I was closer to home on the East Coast. And so I just started working on what I could, some of the existing projects. I started at the time, which I still spend a ton of time on today, which is use waivers and consents. I just tried to meet as many people as I could, get the consents that for the team that we needed to get. And, you know, kind of made the best of it at the time, but it was tough. I mean, we literally, you're a leasing person, in addition to some of the cuts that we had to make, the job cuts we had to make, just not having capital for deals. Like literally, if you came in, Aaron, you said, hey, I have this deal, makes sense. And we just, we know the money for it. Like, how do you feel? You tell them like grade A credit tenants that we can't do your deal because they didn't work like Or we got to put free rent into the deal because we can't afford it. Like we literally didn't have capital. I mean, the banks were controlling us at that time. So that was tough. And this is 08. So now the financial crisis is... Well, at least you're playing on an even playing field. Yeah, the, landlords yeah, the financial crisis is, is starting to kick in. Elections going on. Same kind of thing. I'm, I'm starting to look at other opportunities. One piece of advice back to that dinner that I got, which has stuck with me, is yeah, he said to me, oh, you know, when he looked out when he was younger, he saw a lot of people that were moving, that were jumping at the first opportunity. And look, selfishly, probably want to get me to stay. But what he said, look, I always noticed that people that had grown at a company, a lot of the leadership had been there for a while. It wasn't in our industry. It hadn't been new people coming in. This is at the time. And he said, look, whenever I wanted a new job, I just jumped to a different part of the country. And he told me, look, your value in a big firm is going to be how much of the real estate you touched, how many markets that you worked in. Even as I was looking at other opportunities, I still kind of just said, well, hey, what can I do here, right? What can, even more if we're in a tough spot. And I got a call at late 08 at dinner in New York. I literally thought I was getting fired because some of the other redevelopment guys were getting let go. And they asked me if I want to go back to California. How long were you in Atlanta? I was in Atlanta a year. So all these stops were like a year and a half. So yeah. Philly was a year and a half. Santa Monica was a year and a half. Atlanta was a year and a half. So it's interesting because it's not like you're jumping around companies, but you're jumping around all over the country, which is in its own way of value, to, as you mentioned, to a big organization. The fact that you were willing to pick up and move and go anywhere, I think sounds like it played 
huge role in your ability to kind of climb up and climb up quickly. Yeah, it was great. Look, it was great. If you have the opportunity to move, I look at this as the best deal I could have ever gotten to go out and, and basically see the country on somebody else's dime. Some of the friends that I've met across the country, different parts of the country that I've gotten to experience is another great part of the industry. And I'd recommend anybody look to get the, if you want to see other places, this is a good way to do it in the business that we're... I'll, I'll second that. that I mean, I, I started my career in Atlanta, then moved to Charlotte, then went down to South Florida, yeah. now I'm back in Charlotte. I totally agree. Yeah. I think it gives you leverage to, first of all, how much value is it with all the relationships that you have all over the country, just in general, because you were there based on proximity alone. Yeah, it's value, but it's value from a company standpoint, but also personally, you know, I've got to meet a lot of good people that have been really um, impactful. You got someone to go to dinner with every yeah, day. Yeah, I try. So it's good. It was good. That's awesome. So you go back to California. Yeah. So, what, so at the time, at this, so we were about to get financing on a two-year extension to effectively allow us to sell the company. This was in 2008. This so. is in, so the meeting, this is in December of 08. So the bank is doing this because they didn't have another choice. I mean, yeah, so the, I think it's an important Centro, element. Yeah, the way Centro was structured, they had a lot of cross-collateralized CMBS debt on our property. So Whoops. you couldn't, you know, our COO at the time at Centro going back always said that we created a company that could never be bought. Well, we also created a company that could never just be sold off because the way that everything, how everything was cross-collateralized, they couldn't just sell off the trophy assets. So there was some structure that had to remain with the company. So that was another fortunate aspect of it. So at the time, we were getting a two-year extension and you know, I asked, hey, do you want me to go back to California or Santa Monica? And yeah, Santa Monica. Santa, LA. So it was, yeah. I'm sorry, not California or LA. It's San Diego. Because okay. at the time, there was two offices. So he said, oh, the office is in San Diego. I was like, San Diego. I'm 28 years old, single still. Was, yeah, sure. I'll go back. and uh, Twist your arm and talk yeah. you into it, right? Yeah. And then that job was basically running that office. And it was a much larger manager role than I ever had. So I had a team of 25. That's leasing agents, property managers. Leasing agents, property managers, construction. So you went from a deal junkie to a... Asset manager role. It was, it was, there were eight of us across the country. So it's sort of like Kimco operates today where you have a... a pre, or even Bricksmore too. Well, it's similar how we operate today. We just had eight instead of four Got it. at the time. So yeah, so I got to go out there. It was... Still to this thing, the best experience from just a professional experience to go out there to help build a team. To I can see, see in your face. Up. I can see in your face. It yeah. was fulfilling. It was great. And look, I look, our San Diego team, many of them are still with us today that were there. And to see them grow and excel and do what they're doing is awesome. And it was great. And San Diego is as awesome as people think it is. For okay. those of us that are listening or people that haven't been there, I would highly suggest to spend some time in that city. I'm going to head out there for the West, uh, Western States ICS. Yeah, this it's year. great. And we are pumped it's moving back to San Diego. We'll see sure. you out there. Yeah, then. yeah, for sure. So it was great. And we did a lot of great things as a group. It was a, a very fun office to work in. I, we were le- Some of the properties, we still own many of them today, but that I was working on when I was out in Santa Monica the first time, we're still there. And it was a lot of fun. How long did you have that role? So for? we were there for six years. We made another change in the in the role, but I was still in California about three years in. And that was when Blackstone bought us in 2011. So we were able to work through the the two year sale process, and that was phenomenal. I mean, they saved the company. Yeah. And 
as part of the you know, restructuring of the group before we went public, we went from eight to three regions. So then we were reporting up through the Chicago office. I didn't have direct responsibility anymore over the leasing. I had direct responsibility over the leasing and revenue team, but not construction, not property management. I was kind of the, the office head, if you will, with some. But it's still the West Coast for the West. But instead of reporting up to the CEO, or I was reporting up to a president in Chicago. So that was another little bit of an ego hit. But again, kind of like as I had looked at it before, it was you're going to create value here or you're going to do it somewhere else. Somebody's going to recognize it. So there's something to be said for that. Yeah. Yeah. And so we continued to, we had capital. We were, we were gearing up to go public. We went public, which was awesome to be a part of, to see where the company was and like almost failing. And that example I gave you before of not having capital to, I'm seeing my guys like ring the bell on CNBC and seeing the, our flag on wall street. It was, uh, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool to see where the company was. And we kind of celebrated in the office. It was a ton of fun. So was doing that. And that was towards the end of my the time in San Diego. And I got this job offer to go back to New York. So in 2015, this is in, this is in 2014. So this is interesting with all within basically four weeks, I got married. I got a job offer to move back to the East Coast. And my wife was pregnant. So like, you talk about like, massive life changes yeah no. happening at once was a lot the trifecta yeah for sure you make it through that you can make it through anything. <laughs> yeah. so you move out to new york yeah and at that point it's called bricksmore yep. the company's bricksmore. Yep. bricksmore and you are vp of leasing over yeah, the whole portfolio yeah so i was i had the title that i have today the evp of leasing and i was working with the overseeing the the entire portfolio we had it structured a little bit different than we have today but responsible for all of the deal approvals, all of the, the leasing stats for the, the leasing metrics. Brian's not going to tell us how big of a role that is, but let's put it in context. How many shopping centers does Bricksmore have? So today we have around 400 today. And how many, uh, how many offices? Time. Right now we have four regional offices and, and a corporate headquarters in New York, in addition to several local offices and some sub-regions. How many regional VPs of leasing are? Four presidents that oversee two leasing VPs and each of those leasing VPs roughly anywhere from three to six. So how many, how many people are on the leasing team at Bricksmore today? So on the revenue team, you try to include the whole revenue group is about, give or take about 100 people. So that's leasing, that's marketing, specialty leasing, and yeah, and revenue generate. And we include legal in some of that, but generally our revenue team is about 100 in that. How many new deals will you approve roughly in a year? Roughly like 650 new leases. That's a lot of new leases. Yeah, 3.5 million square feet of new lease activity. All in such a short amount of time. And that's all about, before your 40th birthday. No, so that's a year. So that's what the team did last no, I, year. Yeah. No, I know. That's the, the, the yeah. fact that you're overseeing that type of responsibility and accountability within an organization all before your 40th birthday. Yeah, is, I'm pretty fortunate. You should be proud of yourself. It's yeah. an unbelievable accomplishment. So if you're seeing 600 or 650 new deals a year, you got to have one story for me on the craziest deal you've worked on. And this is a perfect segue into my little rapid fire. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Portion. The craziest deal that I have worked on. Matt will appreciate this burger who runs the who runs the West Coast for us. So in Davis, California, we have a, a Trader Joe's today. It's actually one of our big future redevelopment projects that we have. But at the time when I was leasing that, Trader Joe's wanted to be there. I kind of walked out. There was some interest when I moved to the West Coast the first time in Santa Monica. 
And we had a, a radiological facility uh, that was on the path. We had a relocation right in the lease. And they were a huge radiological company in Northern California. And we were going to move them to the interior of the mall and then put Trader Joe's right up front. And we went into the office to sit down with the radiologic facility. And they're basically like, I don't really care what's in the lease. Like, we're not moving. Like, I see you with the relocation right. You're going to have to sue us to move. And so we had given them an offer. We had to put them in the back of the shopping center. We had, we had talked about signage and how we were going to have. So you needed the NOI on the backspace. I mean, you had an incentive to try to keep them. Yeah, but, but again, even if we just said, hey, leave, they weren't going to... like. We went to the point of then trying to find them another site, all kinds of stuff, but they didn't want to leave, right? They had a great location where they were. And I remember the political campaign that they put through to make sure this didn't happen. The local paper said trade tour shows, like oh, trader, man. right? <laughs> and they were bringing like older people to public hearings basically showing how they couldn't walk to the back, how they needed the access up front. So we basically, we had a lease in place and basically ready to go. And we're fighting this for years. I moved to Atlanta, come back. And when I got back, I get a call from facilities guy who we were negotiating the termination or relocation with. And he says, we have a seven-year option. Our contract with the hospital only goes another five years. Will you change the option? I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, and he goes, okay, then we're probably not going to take our option. I was like, get out of here, whatever. Comes and goes, and they just don't take the option. And Boom, you got him. I called the head of real estate at the time at Trader Joe's. <laughs> I'll never forget the call. They're like, so what do we do? Do we just, I said, well, we take the lease that we had. And rent still, deal still makes sense. Rent still makes sense for us. So they're like, well, are they definitely out? Like we spent all this time. They were worried about the political blowback that they had previously. And And you're worried about your reputation with Trader Joe's. Yeah. And so they, I'll never forget. They didn't, they just didn't take the option. We teed it up, redid a couple things of the lease. Today, that store is right in front of UC Davis. I imagine it's doing a little bit of volume. Uh, it's doing a lot. It's doing a lot of volume. And it's one of the most gratifying things I've been a part of in this business. And I think it tells you the impact that you make on communities. When at the store opening, this woman came up and she was, someone's in a wheelchair and she's basically taking him into the store. And she's like, hey, he just wanted to come over and thank you guys for bringing them to our town, or to, to Davis and making this happen. It was like, it's like really cool, right? You don't think about that all the time. You're in deal mode you want to get something You're looking at a spreadsheet spreadsheet and what community and you see you see how many people are there that day that was pretty awesome so that's awesome that was one that's, that's cool. probably to, for me the the one i'll remember the most so far so far yeah until the next crazy story comes although that, that one's gonna be hard to top so you've had a ridiculous amount of success this early in your career I mean, call it luck a little bit, but that's sure. Fine. And sure. I, I think it was Sam Seed that said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah. And I, I think that certainly applies with you. Yeah. And the question that I would have for you is, where do you see yourself like going next? Like yeah. you're, you're sort of at a crossroads, right? Because you've hit this pinnacle so quickly in your career. Like, yeah. I mean, as far as Reworld's concerned, like there's only so much more for you to do. Like yeah, what I, happens next? Yeah. 
I have a lot of places to still grow. I still feel like looking at myself and really feel fortunate I'm in the position that I'm in and I'm supported the way I am today by you know our CEO, our management team. And with where the company's been and where it is today, you know, I love what I do. So I love seeing new people come into our company and get experience to this business. I, I love seeing people that have kind of grown up through our business, taking on bigger and better things, both within Bricksmore and outside of Bricksmore. You know, one of the cool things here over here at OAC is just seeing how your peers have grown and other people have grown. And you know, you've talked about how you went to a bunch of different places and some of the different things you're doing. So I love that. And to me, I don't find myself at a crossroads. I mean, we got a lot of work to do where where we're at. You know, I'm excited about about it. And everything what's what's good about our business is every day is different. You you are not kidding about that. So I don't know. I still got a lot to do and um, I love what I'm doing. So I don't feel like yeah, at this point I'm at a crossroads really. That's awesome. So what what advice do you have for somebody who's either looking to break into the business like you did or somebody who's a couple years in that's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. They feel like they're in a lethargic, non-growth type role and they want to navigate. They're, they're ambitious. They want to work their way to the top in a similar manner than you have. Yeah. Well, first thing, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. You hear that? Bricksmore leasing agents, don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But just to our team, and I've, I've seen it both internally, I've seen it at other places. Look, people today want to... I mean, I think people always have, but if you look at young people a lot, they want to advance quickly. They want to see what's always next. But I heard a great... JJ Reddick, so speaking of being on a great podcast, JJ Reddick's got an amazing... Other than this one, it sounds Other like than this one, it's yeah, good. Maybe no, a second. I'll maybe a check second. It out. Check it out. But he did a, a good podcast with with David Solomon and, and the CEO of uh, Goldman Sachs, and he was talking about this very question, just in terms of young people. And David Solomon said, "Well, you know, I often ask like, young people when they say, what am I going to do next?'" He, he's like, "Well, I ask them, okay, well, do you like your job? Yeah, I love my job. The work's exciting. I'm doing something new every day. Okay, do you like your boss? I love my boss. Couldn't be more supportive." Do you like the work? Do you actually like the different aspects of what you're doing? The work is awesome. It's something new. And so if you sit there, it's like, that's amazing, right? Just take a step back. Not a, a lot of people don't have that. And so what I would say to people is look at the positive aspects of where you are. Look at the growth opportunities with in yourself. Like, what are you getting the most out of what you do, right? Are you doing everything in your job to help your boss hit their goals, to hit you hit your goals, hit the company, hit their goals before you just say, Hey, what am I going to do next? Or sure. why is it better for me? Because look, people see that they value hard work. They see people that are going the extra mile. And to your point earlier, cream rises to the top. And you see that initiative, particularly we're talking about a business like ours, where look with the headlines of retail apocalypse and store closings, getting people to come into our industry and all the great things that you know about it, all the great things that I know about it can be challenging. And if somebody comes in and recognizes all the aspects of the fun things that we're talking about related to deals, they can be really valuable to somebody very, very quickly. So my advice to young people is when you get an opportunity, make sure you take every advantage of that and look at the positive aspects before it's just, what am I going to do? Next, because in doing that, you will create value for yourself where you're at. And then if they don't notice it where you're at, somebody else is going to. The other thing I would, this is an ICSE plug or another networking plug, is to make sure you're out there talking with your peers in your business. 
you'll find out what opportunities are out there. You'll learn something that maybe they're doing differently that you can apply to your job. I learn something new every day. And I try to tell myself to go into different situations to make sure you learn. I hope I learn a lot at this conference this week. So that would be most of the advice that I would have is really look at what you have today and the opportunities you have before you just try to go somewhere else. Great advice. Now, as far as I want to revert back to what yeah. you mentioned in the beginning of your advice rant. <laughs> I'm a ranter. That, a rant. That's, yeah, a compl- that's a compliment, by that's the good. way. Do you recommend consulting with mentors? I do. And okay, so it sounds like you've thought about leaving. Well, you have left a job before. You've thought about leaving jobs in the past, which may or may not have been the right decision. It seems like you've made the right decisions more times than not. Did you have mentors that you relied on along the way? And who were yeah. they? I've had, I took him on my first sales boss. I mentioned Mike, who hired me at, at Cremont. Jim, who gave me the first opportunity at Legend Properties. Mike, who was our CEO at the time, who you know, gave me the opportunities. Mike and Glenn really gave me the opportunities early, Brooks Moore. I think about other people, leaders in other departments who I just learned a lot of the business from, whether that was in uh, construction, development. Just through like osmosis and how they. So it sounds like a lot of your mentors are internal at Yeah, a lot of them are internal. And I mean, today, you know, my boss has been a phenomenal mentor of mine over, particularly over the, since we've met over the past few years. So most of them have been a mentor, but also outside the company in this industry. And I'm just thinking of it because there's so many that I have. I mean, one who's a friend, Scott Huffman, who's at a small shopping center owner outside in the Bay Area. He was somebody who was in construction development, who was learning to do a lot more. He's got a great COO asset management type role today. You know, taught me. He just had he had a young family at the time, and just watching him work at that stage of his career to prove himself to do better was really gratifying. And then my biggest mentor is my mom too. She worked. She was a breadwinner growing up. You know, she wasn't the mom who was cooking stuff or was always at home. My mom was, which is great. My mom was somebody, she commuted long hours to work. It was probably really tough for her to not, I know it was tough for her to not be there in the house for kids all the time, but she sacrificed. So her brother and I had a good education and she taught me business. She taught me how to interact with people. She's incredibly personal. I joke that that's what I want to be when I grow up still to this day is my mom. And then that's kind of fun she has, but any traits or talents I may have come directly. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I know you're a reader. Yeah. One book that changed your career. Since you said one, I'll give you one recently that I gave out to to all of my direct reports and some others on my team is uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Yep. Beth Azor had recommended that and how he talks about just creating good habits and taking really small steps to do it and not trying to bite off too much out of the gate has been incredible for me. Since reading that, I've got a push-up streak going, a meditation streak going, a reading streak shows, going. Man, no, like I'm not trying. Yeah, it takes a lot more than to do it. Uh, so they just start getting older. So that book's been awesome. And for anybody that feels like they're in a tough spot or going through a lot, you know, a book that's been important was important for me at a at a tough stage in my career when I was answering like a lot of the questions about where I want to go is called "The Obstacle Is the Way" by Ryan Holiday. Who I think that one's on my list? Yeah talks about how using the challenges in life and having some perspective can help get you through some of the toughest challenges you have. So that's another one. Got it. Last question before I let you run. Everybody, obviously, and this is really related to many, many, many years from now. Yeah, yeah. 
when you go down as an icon in this oh, industry, on, man. I don't know about that. And ICMC puts out an article about the unfortunate passing of Brian Finnegan. Yeah. Decades and decades and decades and decades from now. What do you want your legacy to be like in this business? I would like nothing more than to see people on our team be leaders in this industry because that's extremely gratifying to me. So as if, if we looked out a couple decades from now and there's people on our leasing teams that are running companies that are running leasing teams that I've been fortunate enough to interact with and spend some time with and they have helped, that would be awesome. And that's about as gratifying of a potential legacy as, as you can get. So I think about it. That's the biggest thing. Brian, your story is inspiring. It's a rare combination when you find somebody who's sub 40 to be in a position that you're in A and B to have the amount of humility that you have along the way, I think is an important message to convey to the listeners because you don't have to be an egotistical jackass to pounding your chest to get to the top. You've done it in the right way. I've never heard anybody speak one bad thing about you. And it's a kudos to your personality and your tenacity to get where you are and doing it the right way. And I just can't thank you enough for spending time well, with I me. I appreciate and- it. I'm sure you'll find a few tenants out here that might say a bad thing. Or that's doing your fiduciary to your ownership, yeah. man. That's a big deal. Exactly. It's not easy to uh, talk about yourself sometimes, but hopefully somebody can take it and, and kind of see what, uh, what's been helpful to me and hopefully I can use it for themselves. So. I appreciate it, man. It's really good to see what, what you've been doing yourself and look forward to continuing to run into you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm extremely confident somebody will get something out of this. So thanks again for joining yeah, us. Buddy. Appreciate thanks, it. thanks for listening to Limitless. If you like what you heard, it would mean the absolute world to me if you took a little bit of your time to subscribe. If not, perhaps even leaving a review, good, bad, or indifferent. And please feel free to reach out to me directly on my LinkedIn page or on our website, zuckerinvestmentgroup.com. 